think. Um, thanks everybody for, for coming out in week one. Um, I know it's a, already a very busy time of turn, but it's definitely a, a sign of the, the quality of our speaker that, uh, that so many people have come out uh, this early in Trinity. Uh, it's a, a, a real pleasure to, uh, to welcome uh, Natalie Nguyen uh, to speak to us this evening. Uh, Natalie is an Associate Professor at the Australian Centre at the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne. Um, Natalie, I know, is already very well known to many of you who've seen her here at OTJR and also at the, the Refugee Studies Centre. Um, some of you, if you're Australian, may have seen the coverage of Natalie's work in The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald over the weekend. Uh, Natalie was featured for a whole lot of reasons, one of which was that she holds no fewer than two major Australian Research Council uh, fellowships. Anybody who's familiar with Australian academia will know how difficult it is to get one of those. Um, I'm not sure that anybody else in the country that I know of has, has held two. Um, so the Australian press was right, I think, to, to make a yeah, big mention of, of, of Natalie's very prestigious work. Natalie at the moment is on a six-month visiting fellowship here at the Refugee uh, Studies Centre here in Oxford. She has a very lengthy publication list, which if I was to go through it systematically would mean we'd have no time to actually hear her speak this evening. But her latest book uh, is entitled Memory is Another Country, Women of the Vietnamese Diaspora. And the topic that uh, Natalie is going to speak to us on this evening is entitled Memory in the Aftermath of War, Australian Responses to the Vietnamese Refugee Crisis of 1975-1976. Uh, Natalie, it's a, a real pleasure to have you here to, to start the series for this term. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Phil. And thank you for inviting me uh, to present a paper in this seminar series. And I would like to thank you all for being here today. In this paper, I'm going to focus on the events of 1975 surrounding the fall of Saigon and the account of my family's arrival in Australia, both of which are recorded in recently released documents in the National Archives of Australia, as well as the manuscripts collection at the National Library of Australia. In doing so, I would like to explore the moral dilemma presented by the Vietnamese refugee crisis and the ways in which a number of senior figures in the Australian public service and in the Australian media responded to unfolding events. I've structured my paper in the following way. So there's the introduction, part one, Australian perspectives, the papers of Dennis Warner, part two, the fall of Saigon, difficult choices, and part three, Vietnamese refugees in 1975, a personal account, and then the conclusion. Let's start off with the introduction. The Vietnamese diaspora that followed the end of the Vietnam War in 1975 was one of the largest and most visible, visible mass migrations of the late 20th century. It was triggered by the collapse of South Vietnam and the establishment of a post-war communist regime. More than two million Vietnamese left their homeland over the next two decades. The major countries of resettlement were the United States, Australia, Canada and France. But Vietnamese communities were established in countries as diverse as Israel and Norway. The toll of this mass migration in terms of lives lost was immense. And one of the great tragedies of this exodus is that the number of deaths will never truly be known. The losses of both refugees alone are estimated at between 100,000 to a million in the post-war years. In Australia, the number of Vietnamese grew from only 1,000 in 1975 to nearly 200,000 now, 
or just under 1% of the Australian population. The Vietnamese formed the first and most difficult test case of the abolition of the white Australia policy and, as Mandy Thomas noted, received exceptionally high attention in the media and in public discourse, particularly surrounding the debates on Asian immigration. By 1985, a total of 76,000 Vietnamese refugees had resettled in Australia, with another 8,000 arriving under the Family Reunion Program. The Vietnamese community was essentially a refugee community. The Vietnamese refugees included many former military personnel. General mobilization was decreed in South Vietnam in 1968, and nearly every male over the age of 20 had some form of military background. Vietnamese veterans have marched on Anzac Day since 1981. The numbers marching were notable in light of the small size of the Vietnamese community in Australia at the time. Yet little is known of these veterans' life stories, their war experiences, or their perspectives of the war and of Australia's involvement in the war. South Vietnam lost a quarter of a million soldiers during the war, but their histories have been almost completely silenced in the vast historiography of the Vietnam War. As Australian military historian Geoffrey Gray recently noted, and I quote, the Vietnam War impacted primarily and most directly upon the Vietnamese. But the Vietnamese themselves, and especially those former soldiers and citizens of the Republic of Vietnam, are largely invisible in the extensive published literature on the war. The people, the nation, and the cause on whose behalf we fought have yet to be consciously and effectively written into the history of their own war." Unquote. When I conducted research on the fall of Saigon and the refugee issue in the, in the National Archives, I expected to find documents relating to the closing days of the war in Vietnam and Australian policy towards Vietnamese refugees. These I did find. What I did not expect to see were documents relating specifically to my family and our arrival as refugees in Australia. I found these profoundly distressing and disturbing. Since this material is about my family, I don't have the same degree of distance from it as from other research material. And although much of my academic work is informed by the interaction between the public dimension of my research and its personal dimension, this discovery hit particularly close to home. My family's story is framed within a larger narrative of Vietnamese refugees coming to Australia, and this is in turn embedded in the wider collective narrative of the Vietnamese diaspora. Against this background, what I would like to do today is to focus on the reactions of a number of senior Australian figures to the end of the Vietnam War and the Vietnamese refugee crisis of 1975-76. The first is Dennis Warner, a well-known journalist and author. The second, Geoffrey Price, the last Australian ambassador to South Vietnam. And the third, Sir James Plimsoll, who was in 1975 the Australian ambassador to the Soviet Union, uh, and the reason for including him will become clear later on. All were responding to the Australian government's reactions, and in particular those of then Prime Minister Gough Whitlam, to events in Vietnam and the growing number of refugees from the former South Vietnam. Move on to part one. I'll start off with the papers of Dennis Warner. 
Warner was Southeast Asian correspondent for the reporter and editor of the Asia Pacific Defense Reporter. He has written several books, including <coughs> The Last Confusion, 1963, and Disaster in the Pacific, 1992. Warner was involved in an attempt to charter an aircraft to evacuate refugees from South Vietnam in the closing days of the war, and this is recorded in the National Archives. But the fall of Saigon on April 30th put an end to this. He wrote letters of reference for individual Vietnamese and contacted organizations such as the UNHCR to ask for information about the missing relatives of refugees. Among Warner's papers, the letters he received from Australians who were touched by the plight of the refugees were particularly interesting. I'll read an extract from one such letter, and it's a fairly long one, so please bear with me. It is from Margaret Grouse, whose husband was an academic at, at the University of New South Wales. Her letter is dated 6th April 1976 and concerns the 35 married Vietnamese students in Australia who tried to bring their families over at the time. Two of these students were in New College, where her husband was dean, she writes, and I quote. It was not until late on April 21st, after much public ag agitation, that the Prime Minister agreed that dependents should be allowed to join their spouses in Sydney. Names were telexed from the Department of Foreign Affairs on 22nd and 23rd April to the Australian Embassy in Saigon. And you have to realise this was very late because Saigon fell on April 30th. For some reason, some of the wives who managed to argue their way into the Embassy were told that their names were not on the list. None was given an Australian entry visa or any kind of evacuation assistance. We know of only five spouses who managed to reach Australia. Four somehow got on the American airlift one received assistance from the German pharmaceutical firm which employed her. There are still about 30 wives and 50 children in Saigon, if still alive. Tragically, the PM's announcement on the 21st caused many wives to receive cables from their husbands telling them that the Australian Embassy planned to help evacuate them. Letters, which were flown back to Australia right up until the last moment, tell how some wives abandoned as a consequence their plans of reaching a boat at the coast. One refused assistance from an American family, believing she was to be flown direct to Australia. The letters are heartbreaking. When we realised that the families of students had been abandoned, Roger Fordham, a former Adelaide school teacher then working for ASIAC, with his knowledge of Saigon, a current passport and much courage, took off on 27th April on a commercial flight with lists of names and addresses in the hope of getting this folk onto the American airlift. And it was truly very courageous of him. Everybody was leaving the country and he was actually flying into the country. He was offloaded, or trying to fly into the country. He was offloaded in Manila and was unable to proceed further. Later, both Roger and my husband Phil went to Guam looking for student relatives. They found no wives, but about a hundred parents or brothers or sisters of Vietnamese in Australia. Practically all were refused entry by the former PM. However, Roger now has two adopted teenagers living with him, and Phil obtained from the US Navy all their magnetic tape files, which he used to set, a, set up a computer search program. Many folk were thus located for relatives and the Red Cross. I mean, Phil Grass was a computer expert, so he this program. On June 5th, a group of us, mostly academics or academics' wives, flew from Sydney to Canberra and lobbied all day <coughs> King Paul. Senator Withers was most helpful and on June 11th got the Senate Select 
Committee on Foreign Affairs and Defence set up. By the way, Whitlam refused to see us then and on all previous and subsequent occasions." Unquote. I've quoted this letter at length because it demonstrates the extent to which individual Australians went to in their efforts to assist Vietnamese refugees. Warner's papers contain his statement to the Senate Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs and Defence. He appeared before the committee on 13th October 1975. Two points struck me in particular. The first was that Australia only evacuated one Vietnamese staff member from the Australian Embassy in Saigon. Warner states, and I, and I quote, with only one exception, the Australian government declined to authorise the evacuation of Vietnamese working for the embassy. The local employees maintained their posts loyally to the last minute, and when the embassy evacuated on April 25th, its books were up to date as of 6pm on April 24th. They had been prepared by a woman whose own life was thought to be endangered and whose application for evacuation had been rejected by Canberra. The second was that Australia did not help any of the Vietnamese who had worked closely with the Australian Army, and this is Warner again. During the period that the task force was in Vietnam, nearly 50,000 Australian soldiers passed through Fort Thuy province. Their security depended not only on their own efforts, but on the loyal cooperation of the people of Fort Thuy. This was freely given, and the relationship between the people of the province and the task force was exemplary. Scores of officials, ranging from province chiefs down to hamlet, to village and hamlet administrators, worked closely with the Australians. In gratitude for the Australian effort, the people of Fort Thuy erected a memorial to the Australian forces outside the provincial capital of Barria, and there were plans to build an Australian Vietnamese library and museum next to the war memorial. Either the Australian government was entirely ignorant of the fate that would overtake many of these officials, or it did not care, since no attempt was made to ascertain the wishes of any people in Fort Thuy, and no attempt was made to help any to escape. Okay, he continues. It is my very strongly held view that the Australian government, whether we were right or wrong by being in Vietnam, inherited a residual responsibility not to mention a moral responsibility to assist in the evacuation from Vietnam of those who had assisted our forces there and, who, and whose lives they believed to be in danger because of this assistance." Unquote. The issue here is that of loyalty. Warner believed that Australia should have repaid loyalty with loyalty. Of the Prime Minister's role in all of this, Warner's submission reads, and I quote, I have been told repeatedly by officials that Mr. Whitlam accepted personal responsibility for the admission or otherwise of all Vietnamese refugees wanting to come to Australia. I was told by one official that Mr. Whitlam was quite unsympathetic. These Vietnamese soft stories don't bring my withers, he is reported to have said. Mr. Whitlam is also on record that there would be no reprisals in Vietnam and is privately said to hold the view that it would be better if the refugees returned there." Unquote. In this disheartening account of the fate of those who had worked closely with Australians during the war, it is encouraging to read the words of individuals such as Warner and his correspondents. It was this that led me to, to consult the National Archives, since I wanted to check the official record of the fall of Saigon. On to part two. 
The report of the Senate Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs and Defence on the issue of Vietnamese refugees was published in 1976. I found five of its findings notable. Firstly, it referred to the difficulty of obtaining accurate information and to, to conflicting and incomplete evidence provided by government departments, voluntary organisations and individuals. Secondly, the admission criteria for Vietnamese refugees was announced too late on 22nd April 1975. Thirdly, every decision was centralised in Canberra and this impeded the work of the Australian Embassy in Saigon. Fourthly, only one Vietnamese member of staff was evacuated with his wife and child. And lastly, the Australian government had a moral obligation to assist in the evacuation of Vietnamese, but had deliberately, deliberately delayed in order to minimise the number of refugees Australia would have to contend with. These led me to the National Archives, <coughs> and the archival record not only confirms these findings, but provides considerable additional details. The documents include secret cables that were sent between Canberra and the Australian Embassy in Saigon and confidential ministerial submissions relating to Vietnamese refugees. <coughs> Geoffrey Price, the Australian ambassador to South Vietnam, cabled Canberra on 20th April 1975 and I quote, Intelligence estimates state that by the end of today or tomorrow, a total of 17 North Vietnamese Army divisions, which are relatively well equipped and well supplied, will constitute the force that is to take Saigon. This massive North Vietnamese Army force will outnumber the Army of the Republic of Vietnam by close to 3 to 1, and their anti-aircraft defence capability will probably largely nullify the RVF's possession of an aerial strike force." Unquote. And further on, number 7, locally engaged staff under line three. The fate of our locally engaged staff together with relatives of wives married to embassy officers is causing us all much distress. I'm afraid that you must take the, de the decision on this, taking into account the likelihood that we could encounter problems with the local authority. At the same time, I should like discretion to include any who can be included legally. Canberra cable back on, April, on 21st April, and there it is. Ministers have decided that A, having regard to the principle of family unity, the wives and children of Vietnamese students at present in Australia should be permitted to enter Australia. B, passports are to be issued to the, to the spouses and the children under 21 of Australian citizens following completion of citizenship formalities. This will qualify them for evacuation. C. Locally engaged embassy staff are not to be regarded as endangered by the Australian embassy associations and therefore should not repeat, should not be granted entry into Australia. D. If any Vietnamese with long associations with Australia is regarded by you as being in great danger, you may refer the case to Canberra for consideration on an exceptional basis. Ministers, however, would not expect more than a handful of such cases for consideration and you should not stimulate expectations in this context." Unquote. It has to be recollected that there were about 350 Vietnamese students in Australia at the time and that the great majority were unmarried and childless. Phan Dong Bic, for example, who was a Colombo Plan student in Sydney in 1975, said that students were frantic about their families in Vietnam and organised demonstrations, petitions and hunger strikes. 
family for these students meant parents and siblings, but these fell completely outside the criteria set by the Australian government. Peter Edwards, in his 2006 R.G. Neal lecture on the fall of Saigon, was right to say that Ambassador Price was caught between horrific political and moral pressures, while he and his staff struggled to operate in a capital facing imminent defeat, and while he tried to comply with instructions from Canberra that in many cases he thought were shameful, contradictory, or impossible of achievement. I found most moving a letter written by Price's son Christopher on 4th May 2005 and published in the Australian newspaper. And I'll quote. Rodney Dalton's article recites without comment unfounded and hurtful criticisms of my late father, Geoffrey Price, the last Australian ambassador to South Vietnam. My father, as Australia's ambassador, was obeying direct and specific instructions from the Australian government, which he had bitterly but unsuccessfully disputed over the preceding days in not evacuating the Australian Embassy's 55 Vietnamese staff on the RAAF Hercules sent to evacuate the other few remaining Australian staff and him. In an article the Australian ran on the 25th anniversary of the fall of Saigon in April 2000, Stuart Brintoul reported my father's enduring sense of shame at the way Australia abandoned all but one of its locally engaged Vietnamese embassy staff, together with many other Vietnamese at risk of being punished by the incoming North Vietnamese for their associations with Australia. I can confirm that my father's shame at Australia's petty betrayal of Vietnamese colleagues who had worked alongside him did remain with him until the day he died. Christopher Price, unquote. Geoffrey Price may have obeyed his government's instructions, but was then haunted by this decision for the rest of his life. It was clearly a matter of conscience for him. Move on to the last part now. Now there are two subsections in this, documents in the National Archives of Australia and the papers of Sir James Plimsoll. I found all the cables dealing with the, with the fall of Saigon distressing enough, but then came across another set of documents on policies relating to Indochinese refugees. It was there that I saw my father's name and read the following three-page document. It is entitled Vietnamese Refugees, Applications by Former Vietnamese Diplomatic Staff, Nine Third Countries to Enter Australia. It contains two applications for entry that had already been approved and 14 applications that have been approved by the Foreign Minister, Don Willisey. You can see Whitlam's annotations in the document on the right and the public servant's notes in the document on the left that mirror Whitlam's comments. As you can note, these applications were in the main rejected by Whitlam. He wrote no next to most names an example of lives determined by a stroke of the pen. Out of 14, Whitlam rejected 11 outright, wrote possible for two and not at present for a third. My family was one of these two possibles. Okay, so I'll get back to that. My father's is the last name on the first page and I'll read the paragraph out. Nguyen Shudan, Ambassador, Tokyo and family. Nguyen Shudan and his wife are both graduates and might possibly qualify for approval under normal immigration policy. 
they, they do not have any direct association with Australia, but Ambassadors Plimsoll and Shan have commented very favor favorably on Dan and have urged acceptance. Shan believes that Dan would give a written undertaking not to engage in politics. Our Tokyo Embassy has reported that the Japanese government is unlikely to allow the Vietnamese Embassy staff to remain in Japan." Unquote. I think that Woodland put possible because of those favorable comments by Plimsoll and Shan. As you can see, he underlined the sentences, but he provides no reasons for rejecting the other applications. And you have to remember that these applications had already been approved by the Foreign Minister, Don Willesey. So Woodland was rejecting applications that had been approved by his own Foreign Minister. This possible was conditional on my father signing a special undertaking, uh, and I'll get on to that a bit later. A, late, a later document dated 11th June 1975 by K.H. Rogers states, and I quote, When you considered our submission of 28th May on this subject, you indicated that the former South Vietnamese ambassador to Japan and the former third secretary of the South Vietnamese embassy in Kuala Lumpur might be approved for entry to Australia if they were prepared to give written undertakings not to engage in politics in Australia. Two. This condition has been put by our respective missions to Mr. Dan and Mr. Barn, and each has confirmed that he would be willing to give a written undertaking not to engage in or allow himself to be drawn into politics in Australia. Three, I should be grateful for your direction now as to whether Messrs. Dan and Barn may be granted entry into Australia for temporary residence. Four, I should be grateful to know also whether you have any further direction to give concerning, concerning the case of Mr. Chan Vanu, first secretary of the former South Vietnamese Embassy in Tokyo, against whose name you wrote, not at present, when you considered the previous submission." Unquote. You can see Whitlam's writing in blue in the margin saying, admit both for my father and Mr. Barn, and no for Mr. Chan Vanu, and initialed on 13th June 1975. The original of my father's sign undertaken is also in the archives. And there it is. I, Nguyen Chiu Dan, undertake that if admitted to Australia, I will not engage in or allow, my, allow myself to be drawn into political activity in Australia." Unquote. It should be noted that no other refugees to Australia, whether from left-wing or right-wing regimes, have been asked to sign such an undertaking. My father has always stressed how grateful he was to the Fraser government that came into power in, in 1976 because Michael McKellar, Minister for Immigration under Fraser, sent him a letter of apology in 1976 which states, and I quote, the government considers it inappropriate for you to be required to sign that undertaking and the government has decided that the undertaking will no longer be binding upon you. The document will be cancelled and your continued residency in Australia will be entirely unconditional in respect of its contents." Unquote. In all, I found seven restricted cables that dealt with my father. The cables also revealed that he had said that, he, that his family would not become a charge on the state, and that he interceded on behalf of those members of his former staff and Vietnamese students in Japan who wanted to migrate to Australia. As his daughter, I was privy to some of this history, but it is one thing to be told about, the, about past events, and it is quite another to see them recorded in such detail in the archives. 
the hardest thing for me was to recognize my father's name and his signature, and then to see that list of no's by Whitlam. Reading through these hundreds of pages of documents, which I found very difficult to do, I tried to reflect on the positive elements that could be drawn from the archival record. First of all, I noted that senior public servants did their best in the face of the Prime Ministers of Jurisy. Those who prepared ministerial submissions presented Vietnamese applicants and their families in as positive a light as possible. In a submission dated 6th May 1975, H. Gilchrist, First Assistant Secretary to the Legal and Treaties Division, wrote, and I quote, Most of those listed above, as members of the Foreign Service of the former Saigon government, would believe that they have cause for political reasons to fear for their personal safety if they are to return to Saigon. How far some of them at least actually do or will have such cause can only be a matter of judgment. However, there appears to be sufficient cause to raise the question of territorial asylum for consideration. Some, but not all of the applicants, have Australian connections. Their foreign service background would assist in their general adaptability to life during their stay in Australia, whether temporary or permanent." Unquote. Most of all, I was touched by the cables Ambassadors Plimsoll and Shan sent on behalf of my family. Both were prominent senior diplomats. Shan had made his reputation in, in, in Indonesia in the 1960s and was the Australian ambassador to Japan, while Plimsoll was then Australian ambassador to the Soviet Union. Uh, all these men had played tennis with my father in New Delhi, so that's how they all, so that's how they all became friends. Plimsoll had met my father in India. Here is the cable that he sent Canberra on 3rd May. From Plimsoll. I have received the following telegram from Tokyo from Nguyen Chu Dan, who until now has been ambassador to Japan of the Republic of Vietnam. Higgins. Following recent events in Vietnam, would like to emigrate with my family to Australia. One member of my staff would also like to join us with his family. Would you agree to sponsor us? As Ambassador Shan is now in Canberra, we cannot put our case to him. Hope you are keeping well and looking forward to hearing from you. Greetings and best regards. Ends. Two. Dan was Consul General of the Republic of Vietnam when I was in India. He was later with the negotiating team in Paris. I have had contact with him over the years and have seen him in Tokyo since he took up his post there. I regard him as a personal friend. Three. Dan and his wife are relatively young. They are intelligent and of good personality and character and speak good English. His wife is a graduate in economics of, I believe, the University of Cambridge. And yes, he was right. My mum did graduate from Cambridge. I would like to do whatever I can do to help them. I urge they be admitted to Australia. Is there anything I can do from here? Five, I'm sure that Sean will endorse my high opinion of the dance, and if he's in Canberra, you might like to consult him. Six, I have sent a message to Dan saying that I have supported his admission. Four days later, Sean cabled from Tokyo. And I'll go straight to paragraph three. I want to add my own personal and earnest support to what to what Plimsoll has said in his message. I entirely endorse his high opinion of the dance, as I indicated both to the acting secretary and to Gilchrist in Canberra. 
Furthermore, I'm quite certain that Dan would give a written undertaking not to engage in political activity of any kind in Australia. If it is technically possible, and if it would be of any help, I would be personally prepared to offer whatever sponsorship could be arranged. Four, should you want a further opinion about Dan, I suggest you refer to Sir Arthur Tang, as they were both in Delhi at the same time." Unquote. Sir Arthur Tang was at the time Secretary of the Department of Defence in Australia. Both Plimsoll and Shan cable strongly worded endorsements of my father's application to Canberra, and it seems clear from the record that that was the only reason why Whitlam wrote possible next to my father's name. And I'll move on to the papers of Sir James Plimsoll. In the midst of this research, I discovered that the National Library held the papers of Sir James Plimsoll and returned to the manuscripts collection to look for traces of my parents amidst these papers. To my delight, I found several. The first was the following photograph of Plimsoll and my parents taken in New Delhi in 1964. In a separate folder, there was a letter from my father dated November 27, 1964, which makes a logical companion to the photograph. Now, I'll read it, the letter out. Dear Sir James, I have the honour to send you a photograph taken at Vietnam House on the occasion of the National Day of the Republic of Vietnam. Hoping that you would like it, I am yours sincerely, Nguyen Chu Dan, Acting Consul General. My father was 34 at the time, and my mother not yet 24. They had married in London after my mother's graduation from Cambridge in 1962, and arrived in India at the end of 1963. Plimsoll is described in a recent study as, and I quote, tall and balding, serious, studiously polite. As a workaholic, he quickly became indispensable because of his orderliness, fine writing skills, calmness, and capacity for complete loyalty. He became well known to Menzies, who relied on his drafting skills, capacious memory, and judicious counsel. As a lifelong bachelor, he was accessible for urgent tasks around the clock. Plimsoll added to his reputation as a diplomat in his next two posts, as permanent representative at the United Nations in New York from 1959 uh, to 1963, and as High Commissioner in New Delhi, 1963 to 65, you know, when he met my parents. I went through Plimsoll's diaries and found further references to my parents. He had extended invitations to them and recorded receptions that he attended, including the one at Vietnam House, where this photograph was taken. He always referred to my father by his full name and position. Uh, Plimsoll's diary, uh, diaries were appointment diaries, so he did not record any of his personal feelings, thoughts or feelings. In his 1975 diary during his Moscow appointment, he recorded on Friday 2nd May, and there is the, the diary, 1400, I received a telegram from Nguyen Chiu Dan, the ambassador in Tokyo of the Republic of Vietnam, saying that he and his family would like to migrate to Australia and seeking my sponsor, I think he meant sponsorship. I went back through my notes and found that he had acted swiftly. He cabled Canberra on Saturday 3rd May, the day after receiving my father's telegram. He was truly a good man, and I wish I could have met him to thank him. His last public appointment was as Governor of Tasmania, and he died in 1987. 
Okay, so it's now the conclusion, but I'll, I'll leave this photograph because I think it's a very nice one. Okay, conclusion. In his lecture on the fall of Saigon, Peter Edwards notes, and I quote, We see the irony of a Labour Prime Minister taking a hard line against asylum seekers, while a Liberal opposition leader proclaims his attitude to be hard-hearted and shameful. The Vietnam War in particular had allowed Labour to present itself as the party that best understood world and especially Asian affairs. But the refugee issue and other controversies surrounding the fall of Saigon removed much of that authority. Now it was the Liberals, led by Malcolm Fraser, a former Minister for the Army and Minister for Defence during the war, who were claiming the moral high ground. while Labour appeared to be politically, diplomatic, diplomatically and morally inept. Edwards continues, and I quote, A year ago, many newspapers devoted extensive space to articles marking the 30th anniversary of the fall of Saigon. What was striking, strikingly different in this coverage, compared with similar exercises in the immediate aftermath of the war, was the impact made by Australians of Vietnamese origin. Individuals, including former diplomats and officers of the former South Vietnamese regime, and their families told their stories, and in the process wove a new strand into the fabric of the Australian national narrative." Unquote. This is what I hope I have done today in providing a personal perspective of the events of 1975 and the ways in which these impacted on the lives of Vietnamese refugees who came to Australia. I am aware that my family was truly fortunate. We were not in South Vietnam when Saigon fell. And although we became stateless and lost our country and our home, we were supported through this difficult time by Japanese friends who housed us, cared for us, and organized dinners during which guests were asked to contribute money for our family. We were spared the chaos of the final months and the final days of South Vietnam, during which so many died. My parents always stressed that we were luckier than most, and while this is undoubtedly true, their attitude also led to the suppression and silencing of the grief that 1975 caused. It is a grief that has underlain our lives since then, and I think it is a grief that is seldom spoken of between the generations in the Vietnamese community overseas. The Vietnamese have in the main settled successfully in Australia, but this has not been without great cost even if this cost is not necessarily visible. The manuscripts collection at the National Library and the documents in the National Archives reveal individual Australians who reacted strongly to the perceived lapses in responsibility displayed by the Australian government of the time, and whose support extended beyond those early years to encompass the resettlement of Vietnamese refugees over the next two decades. Their voices may not be many, but they are no less potent for that. As for my family and the circumstances of our arrival in Australia, I think back to the senior public servants who handled our fates and who have left these records in the archives. I thank them for displaying charity and generosity at a time when their own government was disinclined to do so. In a large bureaucracy, it can sometimes be difficult to remember how closely documents may relate to people and people's lives. In the words of Christopher Fry, and I quote, we will discuss you, 
until you're nothing but words, unquote. This was not the case with the senior public servants that I have referred to. Of them all, Geoffrey Price faced the most difficult choice. As head of mission, he was responsible for all his staff. He knew the dangers facing his Vietnamese staff. He had interceded on their behalf and asked for, for permission to bring them to Australia, permission that was denied. And although in the end he obeyed his government's instructions, he was to suffer the consequences of this, de this de decision until the end of his life. His moral dilemma was the hardest to bear, and regret can be the most corrosive of emotions. I wonder about the traces all of us leave of our work, our decisions, our impact on the lives of others, and the legacy we leave behind us. Thank you.